from Wall Street to Main Street, there are stories to be told. Where knowledge learned on the street is as powerful as knowledge learned on the streets. This is the Financial Recon Podcast, where we introduce you to the people, places, and things that have helped shape our environment and will help shape yours. Welcome to the conversation. In 1998, when I was in the Air Force, they brought us in a room and asked us to fill in a sheet of the location we would like to be assigned. For those who have served, they are quite familiar with this dream sheet, as it's called. So naturally, two of my selections were Germany and Hawaii. Well, Uncle Sam had different ideas and split things down the middle and sent me to Omaha. Say I was less than thrilled is the understatement of all understatements. But to be fair... Having grown up just outside New York City, it was a bit of a culture shock. Ironically, however, during my time in Omaha, I never put two and two together. That this town was home to one of the greatest investors of all time. But why Omaha? And after years of being away from there, I can see why. Mr. Buffett has never strayed from his hometown. As he references so often, one of the keys to his success is surrounding yourself with people who are smarter than you. And over the years, I'm thankful to have been able to do just that. Unapologetically, I'm a proud Hyder alum. And today, I'm excited to share with you an insightful conversation about the 2021 Berkshire Hathaway Annual Meeting with Dr. Bob Johnson of the Hyder College Business at Creighton University. Bob, thanks a lot for joining us today to discuss a little bit of the uh, Berkshire annual meeting live from Los Angeles, a little twist this year. You know, before we get started, could you kind of just share with listeners a little bit about your history with uh, Mr. Buffett and how you kind of got into Berkshire? Yeah, Mike, I really appreciate you uh, you having me. And the, uh, the Berkshire annual meeting is, I think, it's my favorite weekend of the year. Um, unfortunately, that's been uh, tempered a little bit by the fact that the meetings haven't been in person. Mm. And I really look forward to going back in person. But um, as an accident of birth, the first share of stock I ever bought was in Berkshire Hathaway. Oh, wow. And it wasn't because I was so smart. It was because I was born and raised in Omaha. And I had the good fortune to go to high school with Mr. Buffett's son, Peter, at Omaha Central. And Central High School is within about a mile of the Berkshire Hathaway uh, um, offices. And uh, after graduating uh, from uh, college, um, I got a job as a professor at Creighton University. And Creighton University is right next to Omaha Central and within walking distance to Berkshire Berkshire Hathaway. Um, And I followed Mr. Buffett uh, my entire career. In fact, I, I always said that he was true north in terms of uh, his investment philosophy and, um, you know, what you could learn about investing from him. I've been going to the annual meetings since uh, early, the early 1980s. I think the first one I went to was 1982. Um, they were a little different back then. Um, the meeting was at the Joslin Art Museum in an auditorium that maybe there were 300 people there. And I just remember I was a student at Creighton at the time. I got my master's degree there. And uh, 
one of the reasons I went was uh, there was a, it came with lunch. You got a free box lunch. So uh, <laughs> I, I got hooked. Um, and somebody that is, is kind of a finance nerd like I am really got hooked. And, and the reason is that Mr. Buffett, it's almost a master class every year, I, I would say. It's like Absolutely. going to a master class. And you're not only, you not only learn a lot, but you're entertained. And I think that's been what's been consistent throughout uh, my involvement with Berkshire Hathaway. Um, I had the good pleasure to have Mr. Buffett actually came in and spoke to one of my classes at Creighton University, um, um, did a, an hour question and answer period. And I also um, sat on stage with him at, at the uh, the uh, auditorium in downtown Omaha at the convention center and uh, in, interviewed him for a CFA Institute research challenge where students from all over the world came and engaged in a competition um, and interviewed him for about an hour and a half. Um, witty, gracious, um, you know, it's uh, he, he's a real treasure and 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 one of a kind. Now, having said that, I say one of a kind. Um, Charlie Munger, um, who doesn't obviously get as much um, ac- as many accolades as Warren, um, compliments Warren tremendously. And listening to those two for the many years that I've had the pleasure to do so. Um, I've learned a lot. It's helped my career, and uh, it it's uh, helped my uh, financial status greatly. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it's uh, it's been a real pleasure. Um, the 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 interesting thing is how consistent Warren and Charlie have been throughout the years, and um, you know. One of the examples was um, this year in terms of um, talking about um, when 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 Robin Hood was brought up. Oh yes, and, you know uh, there was a very strong reaction from both men about Robin Hood not being not democratizing investing, but really in my words, democratizing or speculation and how it, calling those folks retail investors, I think, is a misnomer. Um, mm-hmm. They're not retail investors. They're retail speculators. Um, and, and, you know, I think it is detrimental. I think that the apps like Robinhood that, that gamify um, investing um, and appeal Appeal to that part of our of a psyche, I think, is a is a tremendous disservice because it's anathema to what Buffett and Munger believe. Mm-hmm. And you know that's in long term investing, buy good companies, hold them for a long duration, um, and and unfortunately, you know, I think with with GameStop and the meme stocks. I think the younger generation is learning the wrong lesson when it comes to investing. And sure, you hear about the folks who 
make fortunes on GameStop. But there's the other side of that. There are people that are speculating and losing and then concluding that the stock market is a rigged game. You know, the interesting thing, Mark, is, or Mike, it is a rigged game. The stock oh, market yeah. truly is a rigged game, but it's rigged in your favor. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. If, if you just play the game for a long period of time, and that's one of the unique things about Buffett. I don't think you'll ever have another CEO say what Buffett consistently says, and he alluded to it again at this meeting when he said um, the vast majority of investors would j- just be well-suited to simply invest in an S&P 500 index fund. Mm-hmm. even at the expense of investing in Berkshire Hathaway. You know, you're not going to get too many CEOs who are going to tell you to invest in an index fund and not their stock. But, you know, he truly, you know, believes that and that, that, and, and that is what is, is best for folks. But, uh, you know, I think that that strong reaction and then, of course, um uh, you know, quite understandably, on Monday, Jim Cramer came out on CNBC and said um, that Buffett and Munger were wrong and that Robin Hood was good for um, uh, younger investors. And if you think about it, who benefits from frequent trading? It's Jim Cramer and the viewers of CNBC. Um, so I, I find it ironic that. Uh, there's this kind of conversation that's going on, but, uh, you know, lest anyone think that people are learning about investing by buying and selling game stock, stop. What, <laughs> what they're learning is how to speculate. Well, I don't know if you noticed during the Yahoo finance stream, it was sponsored by one of these online trading apps oh, that sure. gamified it. And I was, I, I just thought, <laughs> <laughs> this is this is a real counter to what he's saying here because you know I just think of the story of that te- you know that teenager he yeah. killed himself because yeah. he thought he what was it he lost his parents retirement right. or something and it was a mistake. and it yeah I will go back to what you said too about them being consistent I thought the one line that was really interesting was when he stated about you know management teams being around what was it too long or something like yeah. that is one of the greatest risks i even said this to folks i was like that would be something for somebody to put that in their 10k to say yeah, in our mdna our greatest risk is we hang around too long yeah. <laughs> that was uh it was really eye-opening so but I think that's i think that's one thing though that's i think that the 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 game stop and the gamification mm-hmm you know, I don't want to just put it on Robinhood. It's, right. it's TD Ameritrade. It's it's all of those. In fact, if you think about the commercials, and I don't even know what what broker it's for, but you know, they're talking about these option strategies and the iron condor and the iron butterfly. <laughs> and I think a lot of no- novice investors think that's investing. Right. And, and I think that's speculation. And, and it's da- it's very dangerous. Because who benefits from all the buying and selling of options? Of course, it's the it's it's the brokerage firms. Um, you know, I always say it, it, and I've always looked up to Warren Buffett, and I've always looked up to Jack Bogle. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. I lived in Philadelphia for a little while and I had the opportunity to meet and I had lunch with Jack Bogle. And I think Warren said it, I think it was at the, might've been at the 18 meeting where Jack okay. came and Warren said, this man has done more, saved more money for uh, individual investors than anyone, mm-hmm. you know, in history. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's exactly true with the advent of the index fund. My point to many investors is, you know, adopt the KISS philosophy. Just keep it simple, stupid. You know, if you buy and sell a low uh, a low expense index fund and you just do it, whether the market's going up, down or sideways. You know, 20, 25 years later, you're in pretty good shape. Um, you don't have to make you don't have to make it difficult. And I think that's that's one of the messages that Warren and Charlie have is that you don't have to make it difficult. Well, yeah, absolutely. I was just having this conversation yesterday with some folks, you know, the over uh, the complication of investing to justify necessity of or justify your existence or some of these companies, you know, people will have 30 funds and or ETFs. And it's like, you don't necessarily need all this stuff. You can keep it nice and simple and go, go that route. So out of the, out of this year's meeting, um, what, what would you say jumped out to you? I think the thing that jumped out to me and, and Mike, it has to do with, um, I have a I have a company. I'm CEO and chair of Economic Index Associates, and what we do is we develop uh, investable indexes that are based upon Federal Reserve monetary policy. So I'm a Fed watcher, okay, um, and have been, and that's what my academic research for the past thirty years has been has been on Fed policy, and it's the influence of Fed policy on capital market returns. Buffett came right out and said he sees a great deal of inflation at all of his operating companies. And he made the case to me that that inflation is more sustained inflation rather than the transitory inflation that it seems that Jay Powell believes that he's indicating that he feels that this is just transitory. Um, and, you know, I, I have a great deal of respect for Jay Powell and I have a great deal of respect for uh, the Fed Board of Governors. I think they've done a terrific job in uh, managing, helping manage uh, us through a couple different crises, the uh, financial crisis in 08 and Mm -hmm. then the recent coronavirus. I mean, I I have a great deal of respect for the Fed, so I want to say that right up front. But he put a gun to my head and make me choose uh, between the message that Jay Powell is delivering and the message that Warren's delivering. And I think the message Warren is delivering is the one that I believe. What was the statement that they said? Something like the money machines basically going, going burr and uh, when will it stop or when it stops? Um, we'll find out, you know, who's right. And if it's, yeah. if nothing happens, it'll continue. Which leads me to another point, and that is that you see that's his belief is that there's going to be sustained inflation. Mm-hmm. And he's on record as I think it was back in February, Mike, where he said it's going to be a tough time for bond investors. Yep. Coming up. 
um, the future's bleak for bond investors, I think was a, a quote similar to that. Mm-hmm. Um, which leads me to the following point. If that indeed is the case, and I know he believes that, one thing that has surprised me is why, and, and, and I'll back up a minute, if you're a value investor, you buy undervalued assets and you sell overvalued assets. Well, right. basically what Warren is saying is bonds are overvalued. Okay, I would I have been a little surprised that in this environment, Berkshire isn't issuing debt. Mm-hmm. Now, people will say, well, what would they do with it? They have this huge cash hoard that they can't put to work anyway. Why would you issue debt? Well, my response to that would be... Um, yeah, you'd issue debt and increase your buybacks, buy back more stock of your own stock. Um, and they addressed that a little bit in the at, at the session. They talked about uh, buybacks and Charlie, I think, made the comment that buybacks for the right reason are terrific vehicles for shareholder wealth and buybacks for the wrong reason, you know, are uh, criminal. I think is right. what he said, or something, <laughs> something like that. A typical mongerism. <laughs> right. That um, it has surprised me a little bit that that hasn't been the case. And you know, it, it's really interesting. Here's the other point that uh, that got me to thinking after the meeting is that if you if you if you're a value investor and you like to sell overvalued assets, it's interesting to me that Berkshire hasn't spun off some of its operating companies in an environment where SPACs are buying anything, you know, and they address the fact that they can't buy, they're having trouble finding anything to buy because there's so much liquidity out there and SPACs are literally buying, you know, anything. Right, right. They can't find (laughs) anything at a fair price. Well, I'm a little surprised, Mike, that they're not sellers in that market. That perhaps some of their operating companies, you know, if you're offered a king's ransom for something, um, you know that that might be a good opportunity to uh, to, to to do that. Um, as a shareholder and as a longtime shareholder, I'm really happy that cash hoard is uh, growing. Mm-hmm. Because I would hate to see them putting cash to work just to put cash to work. Oh, absolutely. Yep. And, you know, I'm willing to underperform a little bit on the upside. You know, Buffett, one of the quotes he said, you know, I think the the question was, you always say to be greedy when others are fearful and fearful when others are greedy. You seem to be fearful uh, when others were fearful back when coronavirus started. He says, well, I'm, I'm Berkshire's chief risk officer. You know, and, and the, the, the shareholders of Berkshire Hathaway are a decidedly different group than the shareholders of most other companies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, most of the core shareholders are Berkshire Hathaway. And I'm talking about the people who bought the A shares many years ago. It's, it's, Sure, it's about growing wealth, but it's about protecting wealth, too. And I think that philosophy has served those longtime shareholders well. So, um, you know, in this environment where speculation is rampant, 
and uh, you know there are assets that are being driven up in in price that have what I would call questionable or no value. I think it's kind of I, I I'm I'm pretty happy that Warren is as conservative as he is at that point. I would agree. I mean, I don't, I would hate to see him just buy, you know, it's the same thing I tell people. You don't want to buy things to buy things. That's, that's the wrong, that gets you into trouble. And uh, I mean, I'm sure we could look at some of these, you know, maybe Kraft Heinz falls into that category. You know, he, he, the last couple meetings, he regret, you know, seems like there's an ounce of regret in his voice that, well, I want to say in eight, what was it, 19 or 18? Yep. He kind of said, you know, I wish I didn't kind of go down yeah, that road. Great, I bought a great company. I just paid way too much. Yeah, yeah exactly. That was yeah, the line I remember. You know, with that, um, there's also this debate out there about, well, this big cash hoards growing. Shouldn't Berkshire Hathaway issue a dividend? Right. Well, as a longtime shareholder, and one that owns Berkshire Hathaway in a taxable account. The last thing I want is for Warren to give me money to invest. I'd rather have him do it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people say, well, yeah, but he's not doing it because he's letting the cash hoard grow. Well, (laughs) I'm willing to wait. And I'd rather have him deploy that capital at the right time then have me try and figure out when to deploy that capital at the right time and to take a tax hit. Now, having said that, the perfect complement to that are buybacks because, you know, if you if if you sell your stock, you know, if you sell Berkshire Hathaway to Berkshire Hathaway, um, you're incurring that taxable event yourself. Right. You're not having it imposed on you. So. You know, I think the clientele effect, um, you know, the people who don't want dividends have gravitated toward uh, Berkshire Hathaway. Um, Just declaring a dividend because you have a little too much cash, I think, is really short sighted. Yeah. And, you know, do you think like with SPAC mania going on and, you know, um, this hoard of cash, you know, some some really good brands like things that he you know he loves like I, i'm gonna like zero in on Utz, the uh potato chips uh company they uh went public with a spec and like something not you know not necessarily them i'm just using them as the example in this scenario but do you think that that cash pile like you're saying you know let's the market turns we get into an environment where things are sold off and those entities are on sale, you think he starts deploying it, buying more quality brands that would fit the Berkshire mantra? You know, Mike, I would say that, but um, what uh, Warren and Charlie want to do is they want to buy a whole company. Right. So something okay. public, um, that's a difficult thing to do. You know, it, it's an interesting it's an interesting aside that when I started buying Berkshire Hathaway in the early 80s, I was basically buying a company that's value relied on Warren's stock picking acumen Mm -hmm. because really 
the lion's share, and I'm going to use broad generalization here, 80% of the value of Berkshire Hathaway was marketable securities. Okay. Over time, the value of Berkshire Hathaway has largely become the value of the operating companies, and the marketing marketable securities are a fairly minor part of the portfolio. They're still a, it's a huge number in terms of dollar amount. The marketable securities portfolio is enormous. Mm-hmm. But as a percent of Berkshire's value, I think it's in the 30% range. So it's more finding these operating companies that are less in the public view. You know, because people that follow the markets are following marketable securities. They're not mm-hmm. following the truck stop company that Berkshire owns or sees candies or. Right. Right. So I, I think. I think that's where I think it's more the private markets that is where Berkshire will be looking to deploy the cash. Well, now, that's not wants- to say, <laughs> you know, that's not to say what Ted Weschmer and Todd Combs do isn't valuable to the company. It certainly is. Right. 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 And by the way, I'd be remiss in this uh, uh, podcast if I didn't say, you know, they've obviously made it much more clear about succession in the future with Ajit um, and uh, Greg Abel Mm -hmm. and then Todd and Ted handling the marketable securities. Um, You know, to me, that's kind of a dream team, Um, you you know, because I think people worry about, well, what happens to Berkshire Hathaway when when Warren and Charlie are no longer with us? Um, Oh, yeah. I. I strongly believe that that's a dream team. And Mike, Warren's been setting this up for many years. Mm-hmm. And he's been setting it up in the public sphere. And I, I, I wrote a piece in the Omaha World Herald uh, in, I think it was 2019, the, the last uh, in-person, after the last in-person meeting. And I said, Buffett's biggest lesson is not a financial lesson. It's a lesson in how he treats people. Um, he has the highest degree of emotional intelligence of any CEO that I know of. And I say that because at that meeting, he took blame, he took himself blame for all the mistakes. Mm-hmm. Because, well, that was me. You know, I paid too much for this. I did that. Isn't that when he mentioned about Amazon? He said he passed on Amazon, right? And he gave kudos. You know, he gave kudos to Todd, Ted, Greg, and Ajit. And my God, if that's the kind of culture you have. I mean, think about all the CEOs who want to take all the credit for when something. And I'm thinking about the CEO who's going to host Saturday Night Live tomorrow night. Right? (laughs) Right. Right. You know, everything is his is a result of his brilliance. And with Buffett, it's 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 kind of exactly the opposite. So he surrounds himself with competent people and he he's not afraid to he's not afraid to be around really smart. He likes being around really smart people. And my God, that's a recipe you know, for success, you know, who wouldn't want to go, you know, work for Warren Buffett at Berkshire Hathaway? 
when well, that's like, the way you treat it. Like you said, you know, surround yourself with smart people. That's that's the answer he always. I remember when someone got up, I think at eighteen's meeting, and said, and I'm sure this happened at all the meetings you've been to over time. What are some graduate courses I should take in an MBA? What MBA should I? Just surround yourself with good people, and you'll you're a product of your environment. You know, and and this plays into one of the big. Uh, controversial, and I say controversial, I don't think it was controversial with the Berkshire shareholders, but I think it was controversial with a lot of the uh, press and a lot of the uh, um, the folks in the financial community. And that had to do with this ESG and diversity discussion. Mm -hmm. You know, he recommended voting against that uh, um, uh, resolution. Um, And Part of that, Mike, is that he doesn't want to dictate. He he has a very decentralized management style. He doesn't want to dictate to the CEOs of Nebraska Furniture Mart, of Seas Candy, of Dairy Queen, of all those companies. He doesn't want to dictate that they have to do that. They have to gather that reporting and, and do all of that. And. It isn't that Warren doesn't believe that there are that climate change is real or that diversity is a good thing. It's he wants to allow the manage his managers to manage the way they do. Mm-hmm. And people will say, well, but what if they what if they go down the wrong path? Well, he chooses his companies very carefully. And he he doesn't go to business with people who are, are doing those things. So I think and by the way, I, I I'm very much in agreement with him when he said um, the quote was people on on the environment, people on both ends of the spectrum are crazy. <laughs> you know, the climate deniers are crazy and the ones that think, you know, we should eliminate, you know, carbon anything carbon today, right. you know, th- that they're both crazy. And, you know, I think it's a very, um, it's a, it, it's a viewpoint that makes a lot of sense. And I, I, it didn't surprise me, but it got a lot of play. My feeling, Mike, on ESG is I believe that we've got a, the financial um, uh, industry has gotten way over its skis on this. It's like, you know, okay, climate change is a problem. ESG, the solution is we're going to require companies to report more, and but there's no answer to what it means. And I really find it really interesting that you look, for instance, at some of these ESG funds well, ESG, one of, one of the big holdings in a lot of these ESG funds is Tesla, right? right. You think, well, it should be because it's an electric car company and that's the future. Okay, but there's a huge amount of Bitcoin that they have on their balance sheet. And Bitcoin uses power up like crazy, right? Right. <laughs> yep. So it's difficult, it's difficult to parse all that out. And until we come to an agreement on what truly is what 
ESG should be. I, I think Warren's right in not mandating doing reporting just because somebody else is doing reporting. And, and the reporting side, you know, I I tend to agree. He doesn't want to tie people's hands. He he wants to let them run their show. Like he he's never gotten into the into those weeds. Could you imagine that Nebraska Furniture Mart? Him going to the Blumpkins and saying. <laughs> No, I, I I needed ESG report. Like, right? I understand why he does that, but as one of my friends who's an ESG manager stated, Warren has you know, even though he may not represent that in the meeting and you know suggest uh, that proposal, if you go watch that documentary, Becoming Buffett, I mean, he is very aware of social, like when he discussed about, like, I think he said the greatest speaker he ever saw was Martin Luther King Jr. And oh, stuff like, no, you know. Warren, Warren believes it, it isn't that he doesn't believe in those principles. Right. It's that he doesn't think this vehicle is the right vehicle to, to right. accomplish it. And, you know, yeah. Berkshire Hathaway, you know, people will say, well, it, you know, big position in Chevron and Chevron is a bad actor because it's a carbon, you know, it's fossil fuels. Well, OK, but Berkshire Hathaway Energy, there, you know, there's a lot of very eco-friendly energy uh, initiatives that Berkshire Hathaway Energy is. I think and I think it's this whole portfolio thing that makes it difficult to determine what's a real ESG play and what isn't. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I, again, I think that the, uh, my opinion is that the financial industry has gotten way ahead of themselves. So if we could just back up to the, about Greg, you know, the succession plan and like with Greg and Ajit, one thing I did note when I was at um, the meeting in 19 was, you know, some of those board members, they, they they're pretty. I mean, they're they're very. Uh, they're all in the above on the life expectancy scale. There's some you know old timers on yep. there, and I'll be curious. You know, Bill Gates stepped away from the board, and I wonder who they'll be looking at to you know be the next generation of Berkshire directors. Yeah, they compliment Greg. You know, you know, and I I bet Mike that. Um, That'll be influenced more by Greg and Ajit than it will mm. be by Warren and Charlie, because Warren and Charlie will recognize that those are the board members that Ajit and Greg will be dealing with. True, true. So I think that that's part of the empowerment, and and he does is that's part of the empowerment that uh, Buffett does for his employees is they're mm -hmm. empowered. And I'm, you know, I'm sure that, that that indeed will be the case. Um, you know, when, when the succession comes about, <laughs> uh, but I will just say that having been a Berkshire Hathaway Cheryl, like I said, since I think 82, um, I'm not worried about the future of the company. Oh, uh, no, I, I, I thought Greg did a fantastic job. Um, very Buffett-esque on his uh, answers um, uh, Saturday, yeah. you know, and just in my, you know, you could just see them playing the roles that like Charlie and Warren have that they like, can see in their head, you know, um, 
it, it reminded me because last year here in Raleigh, we had the um, Disney annual meeting. And right after I, Bob Iger had stepped back and Bob Chapek stepped up and, you know, like that one, I felt like Bob, Bob Chapek was kind of getting his training, you know, kind of getting the wheels on their own. And I feel like last year was Greg, kind of doing that and now this year he just looked a lot more comfortable warren looked great having the as i joked in my blog piece getting the band back together him and uh <laughs> charlie back together and and i thought ajit was very you know numbers oriented like the question about the insurance policy about elon yeah um uh, <laughs> was was typical warren <laughs> the win is unbelievable yeah. And it has been for years. I mean, the the how witty both of them are, and how they're so witty together um, is is pretty incredible. You know, one of the things that and he's drawn some unfair criticism, I think, for this is they say, well, why aren't and and he addressed it a little bit at the meeting. Mm-hmm. Why uh, aren't Todd and Ted more in the limelight? And basically, what he said was, do you want Pfizer or do you want one of the drug companies to give away their secrets of right? Right. I I agree with that. I mean, it's, (laughs) Oh yeah. You want your, you you know, you, you, you want your stock pickers to, to do it behind the curtain. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, if you think about the positions that they've taken recently and, and of course, nobody knows, whose position each one is right but my guess and i i mean it's a guess but i think it's one that i think is pretty educated guess is that apple was not warren or charlie you know they always said they didn't understand technology and and i kind of laughed at that because apple isn't a technology company they sell technology but apple's a consumer goods company Mm-hmm. And they understood they understand consumer goods, but it kind of amazes me the how big that Apple position has gotten as a percentage of the marketable securities portfolio. And again, mm-hmm. I may have the numbers wrong, but I thought it was like forty percent of the marketable securities portfolio. It's significant, and uh, well, I w- that's that's a commitment. That's another Charlie and Warren commitment to either Todd or Ted or the combination of the two of them. That boy, we're willing to make we're willing to make a big bet, and oh, we yeah. have faith in you. And they've been rewarded exactly with that split, and and I know that as uh, Warren says, you know, hunt, hunting for elephants gets a little harder with. Uh, all this money, you know, sitting on the sidelines and so forth. But I'd love to see them just be able to, and I'm sure everyone would love to see them pick up, you know, some brand that, you know, you could see Warren just, you know, pitching like he does with the peanut brittle, you know, and I really thought Southwest was that brand to be honest with you, but it was interesting that they, you know, how he explained stepping away from the airlines and I thought, well, he he took the heat, but he did it for their benefit. Probably saved a lot of people's jobs. Yeah, and if you think about it at the time, um, 
at the time I was happy he did it as a shareholder. Um, you know, it turns out hindsight's twenty twenty, and it turns out that would have been the best time to be buying airlines. But um, and you know, it, it, he talked too about his commitment to banks. He think banks are a great investment, but you know, he, his Bank of America stake he didn't want to go over ten percent. Uh, because they, isn't that because of regulatory? They have to like yep. file something with the uh, Treasury Department, or because that happened with Wells a couple times. I think I'll say that's one thing. If if any moment I've been, I don't want to say disappointed, but I maybe I don't know. I, I wish I, he was more firm with Wells Fargo, and in that whole account opening, yeah, fiasco. And again, I think that the one time in history where he did draw the line in the sand was um, with Solomon Brothers back in the yep. 80s. Um, Great, one of the greatest lines ever yep, with that. When he was testifying before Congress. Yep. Um, but again, I think, you know, um, I think that he thought that the, the, the reforms could come without going too strong. And we still see this kind of similar problems at Wells Fargo. We saw it again this week. Yeah. Um, you know, it just might be endemic in the culture. Yes. And that's, and that was, you know, probably the one time I was ever like, I wish we could have gotten a little bit deeper on the answer, but yeah. you know, and, and kind of wrapping things up, uh, Bob, I guess out of your, you know, time going, to, you know, these meetings, well, wow, next year will be what, 40 years. Yeah. What would you say is your favorite memory from the annual meetings? I think that um, I, I think one of my favorite memories is just thinking back to how it began and what became of it. You know, again, the first meeting that I went to had three or four hundred people in a small auditorium, very informal, to you have to arrive at 5 o'clock to make sure you, 5 a.m. Oh, I, 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 yeah, I'm out there. To make sure you get a seat <laughs> in the arena. Um, and then you got to guard those seats, like, for your life. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, I think it's that, and I have a great pride being born and raised in Omaha, Nebraska. I have great pride in the kind of the way the city and I, I feel bad that Omaha hasn't been able to host it for the last couple of years, but um, that uh, the interesting thing is Warren will credit much of his success to the fact that he lives in Omaha mm-hmm. and that he's not on wall street, that he's not, it's, it's a different atmosphere. Um, and, and I don't know if you've ever been to the Berkshire Hathaway offices, but the office that I'm, I'm still in, waiting on my invite. So if you, you know, can grease uh, Debbie's palm to let me in the door. <laughs> the office that I'm sitting in right now, my home office is much bigger than the office that Warren sits in. Um, it, it, it just is, it's a different kind of environment. And the fact that, the fact that I've gotten to know Mr. Buffett somewhat is, I, I think, what what is the most remarkable thing 
is he's never got too full of himself. Mm-hmm. You know, you think about it, Warren Buffett, well, in this field, he's the icon. He doesn't believe, he doesn't feel that way himself. He's self-deprecating. Mm-hmm. And it's a little bit like Jack Bogle. Jack Bogle was that way too. Um, they did it because they love what they did. Warren does it because he loves what he does. And uh, what's interesting is when I was interviewing him, one of the things that he said, you know, it's like I ask him a question about being as wealthy as he is. What is it like being that wealthy? And he said, well, he said, what really what really clicks for him is that he gets to work with people he likes on something he believes in. And I've always kind of followed that followed that theory is it got, gave him enough likes belly. Oh, and he said, and he doesn't have to fly commercial, which, <laughs> you know, I, yeah. I, I think all of us would be, but I think some of the lessons over time, Mike, is that I, I think he's been reinforcing the same lessons for years. And let me give you an example. The current rage and the, uh, that people are saying, Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett don't understand is cryptocurrencies. Because, you know, they're on the record. Um, um, I think rat poison squared. <laughs> and I think Charlie said, you know, if, if they started, uh, if people started trading turds, would you believe that you needed to trade turds? You know, when he's talking about <laughs> cryptocurrencies. Um I think, Mike, that cryptocurrencies are the biggest bubble that I've seen in my lifetime. I, for the life of me, there's two things that I don't understand in finance that I will freely admit. I have a PhD in finance. I've been teaching finance for, you know, a long time. There's two things that puzzle me. One is cryptocurrencies. They're worth something because somebody says they're worth something. Um, and the second thing are negative interest rates. You know, it's it's a couple different phenomenon. Now, the reason I brought that up is that Warren's been very consistent throughout time on these speculative excesses and what they mean. Now, let me give you an example. In the late 90s, Buffett was getting chided publicly because he wasn't investing in uh, the dot-com companies. In fact, the last issue of Barron's, the last century, the December, I think it was December 29th, 1999, was a cover story, What's Wrong, Warren? And it talked in there about Um, You know, Warren didn't have any exposure to the dot-com companies. And when when he was interviewed at the time, he says, I just don't understand. To me, there's no value there. How do you value a company that it doesn't look like there's any value there? There's no fundamental way to value it. And the answer was, they weren't. And three months later, the NASDAQ crashed, and he was proven right. 
I don't think that's any different today when you look at cryptocurrencies. I mean, and there's a lot of people that are making a lot of money speculating in cryptocurrencies. And I, you, you heard me say speculating, not investing, because I don't think you invest in. I don't. I don't know how you invest in something that you can't delineate how a, a fundamental valuation is is made of it. Yeah, and and like to to I totally agree with you, Bob, because. During that period you're discussing, Warren was what's what's wrong. Warren is when I was living in Omaha. I was in uh, off at Air Force Base, and ironically, dealt with cryptography. Part of my undergraduate work was writing a paper on cryptography, and I a thousand percent agree with you. And I don't think people really understand. You know the the differences and the nuances of this thing, and it's gonna end badly for somebody. And I can't get into all my reasons for <laughs> the the government will probably not like it, but you know, I I really I I think that's spot on. You yeah, know? it's gonna end badly, and and the other problem, Mike, is that, and this is different than in the late nineties is that there are these echo chambers on the web and where communities get together of these crypto advocates. Mm-hmm. And, and they talk to each other and they convince themselves. You know, it's just like the Reddit mob with uh, GameStop. Right. Um, and it it makes these speculative excesses even more than they were in the past because of the 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 way that information is disseminated now. Yeah. And I, uh, I you know, uh, when you see Bitcoin go from, you know, hit $60,000, um, there are people buying it at this level. There's some, at some point, I don't know when it's going to end, but I know it's going to end. And I know there's going to be a lot of people that are going to get hurt, and that, and, and again, people that think they're investing. Yeah, well, the music's going to stop, and someone's going to be without that chair. Yeah, yeah. So I, 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 I agree. It's uh, it's rather concerning, and you know, leave it to Charlie Munger to always spice it up a bit. Yeah. <laughs> well, and uh, you know. Um, I always say, Mike, that the four most dangerous words in the English language with respect to investments is this time is different. (laughs) And you hear that a lot with, you know, some of the detractors of of Charlie and Warren is that they just don't understand the new the new economy, that this time is different. And I, I. I think fundamentally the way you value an investment hasn't changed. You want to buy something that throws off cash flow. Um, and it's pretty simple. And, you know, it's kind of funny you mentioned about the echo chambers and that's one of the things that Creighton, you know, it's kind of parlays into, you know, from when you take the analytical side of things and you combine it with like uh, Brad, Dr. Brad Klontz's, uh program with behavioral finance and you start you know looking at that and they just folks get that 
that echo chamber of confirmation bias yep. and bam, they're in the thing and they, they don't know. So, but Bob, thanks so much for spending your you know time with me. Uh, this well, I appreciate it, Mike. Fantastic. I love the discussion and, you know, hopefully one of these days uh, I'll be able to crack the code and uh, get to visit Mr. Uh, Buffett's office. <laughs> uh, well, um, you, uh, you picked, I'm going to use a Buffett line that I always use. Um, it's, you know, you hit, you hit definitely right in the middle of my circle of competence. And, you know, Buffett always says it's not how big your circle of competence is. It's that, you know, it's perimeter. And uh, <laughs> you, you happen, when you asked me to do this, you happen to hit my circle of competence. Well, it was great. I, I thank you so much. And, uh, you know, one of these times we'll have to, uh, share next time we're at the Berkshire meeting we'll have to share a La Casa pizza next year and that would be next great <laughs> I'm already looking awesome. forward to it yep me too me too well thanks a lot take care thanks for joining us today to continue the conversation visit us at our blog financial-recon.com Appearances do not constitute endorsement of flagship wealth management group, LPL Financial, or any other entity discussed in this program. Securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor. Member FINRA SIPC. The opinions voiced are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. All performance referenced is historical and is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. This information is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized tax or legal advice. We suggest that you discuss your specific situation with a qualified tax or legal advisor. Dr. Bob Johnson and Creighton University are not affiliated with or endorsed by LPL Financial or Flagship Wealth Management Group.